This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan. I'm delighted to introduce two guests today, Kelly Baum and Randall Griffey. Kelly Baum is Cynthia Hazen Polsky and Leon Polsky Curator of Contemporary Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And Randy Griffey is also a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Kelly and Randy are co-curators of the exhibition, Alice Neal, People Come First, which opened at the Met on March 22nd and will be on view until August 1st of this year. This ambitious retrospective exhibition positions Neal as one of the most radical artists of the 20th century, a champion of social justice whose commitment to humanist principles influenced her art and guided her decisions in life. Neil was born in Pennsylvania in 1900 and lived for much of her life in New York City. The city, its streets, buildings, and residents became important subject matter for Neil's paintings. Neil is perhaps best known for her portraits depicting family, friends, lovers, neighbors, artists, and poets, among others. And these paintings are acclaimed for their psychological acumen as well as for their formal qualities. Kelly and Randy are also the co-editors of the exhibition's catalog, also titled Alice Neal, People Come First. The book is absolutely beautiful with tons of illustrations and essays by not only Kelly and Randy, but also Met Research Associate Meredith Brown, Susanna Temkin, a curator at El Museo del Barrio in New York, and art historian Julia Bryan Wilson, who is the Doris and Clarence Mallow Professor of Modern and Contemporary Art at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk to you both, Kelly and Randy, about Alice Neal. The exhibition and the book, as I mentioned, are called Alice Neal, People Come First. Can you talk about the implications of this subtitle in terms of Neal's art, as well as her biography and her political commitments? Well, first of all, thank, thank you for taking time to, um, to conduct this interview and this podcast. Um, appreciate your, your attention and interest um, in this project that's been very meaningful, I think, to both of us and has occupied so much of our time and intellectual bandwidth over this past year. Um, and um, the title um, is drawn from a quote uh, from an interview Neil conducted or gave in 1950. Um, and I think that, um, uh, you know, that we wanted Neil's voice to be very prominent in the exhibition uh, and in the catalog. Um, so, we uh, uh, ad adopt her voice where we can. And so that, that plays a part in how we went about discussing the title and, and, and landing on the title that we liked. I personally like the subtitle because it also sounds like a political slogan. Um, and so it's an easy segue to, to uh, talk about Neil's politics um, in addition to her humanism and how those were intertwined. Um, and Kelly would ha have more to add there, I think. Sure. Well, the, the original subtitle was Painter is Radical Humanist, I think, which is a bit of a mouthful. And, um, and um, the, the word humanism is not so easy to parse, especially on first glance. And it was Randy who had the idea to, to change the subtitle to People Come First. And it's a more succinct, elegant way to signal her commitment to people, her commitment to people, to people's lives, struggles, joys and passions that that 
that animated Neil's Neil's work and is at the heart of her um, uh, the heart of her career. She said also, I believe in art as history. Neil did that is. What what does that mean in the context of her focus on people, uh, including often her neighbors and members of her own family? Well, Neil Neil thought of her her work as history paintings, and uh, they they don't always look like the sorts of history paintings we're used to seeing in in the old master galleries in uh, or the Louvre. But she she considered her work um, portraits, landscapes, still lives to be a kind of history painting and that they bore witness um, to history as it was experienced, as it, as it played out in the lives of, of people and, and cities. Yeah, and um, adding to that, just the point that she, she felt like her, her work was capturing the zeitgeist, and in that sense uh, was a kind of history painting, albeit a very unconventional kind of history painting, as the um, the zeitgeist um, was evident and um, registered in the the people and the places that she was painting at any given point in time. In terms of the zeitgeist, I mean, her, her work spanned much of the 20th century, but she kind of came of age at a particular moment of uh, social and political foment. And she was quite politically engaged in a leftward direction. She was intermittently affiliated with the Communist Party. Uh, her personal archive of literature that she left behind included numerous Marxist publications. Uh, but she's also described by more than one person, I think, in the book's essays as being resolutely anti-dogmatic. How, how did she negotiate her aversion to dogma on the one hand with her involvement with communist activism? And, and how also does that express itself in her art? Yeah, this is also, I'll say a word or two, but this is really in Kelly's wheelhouse. Uh, and she writes about Neil's politics so beautifully in the catalog. Um, uh, Neil admitted on multiple occasions that she was a bad communist, um, you know, and that's an admission that um, she was allergic to um, dogma. Um, I think that in the abstract, she was, of course, she was closely affiliated with the Communist Party, uh, especially in the 30s. Um, but uh, she was drawn to the Communist Party because of uh, her humanism and her, her belief that uh, modern uh, life in the U.S. Um, and in the world generally was anti-humanistic um, and was, um, was, um, was uh, diminishing the value of humanity. And to a large degree, her practice as an artist was meant as a counter to that. Uh, and and here again, I would hand off to Kelly, who who really has grappled with Neil's wonderfully complicated politics. I, I I find Neil's politics to be so interesting because they're full of contradictions. I think that Neil Neil was fiercely independent, but she was also fiercely political, and that speaks to her to to this contradiction. She. Um, you know, she was sensitive to injustice of all kinds, especially economic, racial, ethnic, and gender. But she was allergic, as you said, to dogma and bureaucracy. She she was a rule breaker. And so no matter whose rules were at play, she she wanted to break those those rules. I think that her, her politics were also idiosyncratic, non-programmatic. So, and, and this was part of her independence and that she, you know, she might have joined the Communist Party briefly. She might have read 
Marxist texts. She might have collaborated with members of the civil rights movement, with, with feminists, but she didn't necessarily subscribe to their belief systems completely. And so she always staked out a very independent position vis-a-vis communism, vis-a-vis injustice, vis-a-vis feminism. So she participated, but with one foot in and, and one foot out. Uh, and, and interestingly, her her life as an artist was not dissimilar. You know, she never really joined or belonged to a single artistic movement. You know, she was on the edges of social realism, abstract expressionism was an anathema to her. Even even fem- the feminist art movement, she she her position was always singular and and independent, whether it was a matter of politics or art. Yeah, you write in in your essay, in fact, that she was Alice Neal was at her most radical when she didn't seem to be making political statements. Is this is that part of the same idea? I I think so. It's and it, it's a theme that that Randy picks up at as well is that. There are obviously political peeps. She makes paintings that are obviously political. Um, they tend to be didactic, moralizing. But I think that her politics are even more interesting and more radical when they're um, less didactic. And so, you know, for instance, the painting Futility of Effort, um, you know, maybe Jackie Curtis and Rita Red, it's that there. And, and the politics are... So the politics at play in paintings like that are more difficult to pin down. And so and they, they contain contradictions and complexities. So I think, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely true from, from the beginning to the end of her career. Politics are threaded through all of her work. They just manifest differently. And and I think to Randy and I, they were more interesting when they were harder to, to pin down and when they couldn't be translated into a, a, dis, you know, a single message or, or lesson. And a number, I would just add to say that a number of her subjects um, are, are not necessarily political in a uh, conventional sense, but she painted subjects that were politicized uh, at any given time in her career. Um, and so, um, you know, her, the, and it's, her, her work um, dovetails with the kind of politics of representation uh, and uh, in, in one way relating to um, queer representation in the 70s in the midst of the, of the gay, gay liberation movement, for instance. So um, she knowingly um, painted some of her subjects knowing that they were politicized. Uh, in, that, in that way, they were political but um, not in a, in a conventional sense. One of the other aspects of her kind of following her own political compass in that way is that, you know, because she did live through um, dramatic swings in the political pendulum too, she, she maybe wasn't ever put in the position of having to disavow any particular um, extremity of of her of her politics because they were self-guided in a way. Do you think that's true? Are you are you talking about the the loss of moral high ground maybe among the communist yeah. movement during yes, no, you're right. I, I think it made it easier for her to cling to if not communism than than socialism during the the fifties, um, you know, forties and fifties as 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 word of Stalin's atrocities 
started to circulate because she she actually you know because she wasn't a member of the party and um, and she she had rejected orthodoxy in favor of um, you know that movement's humanism. I think she really you know believed that that socialism had a human was was humanist at its core. It was the way it was being so yes, it's being abused by 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 politicians and world leaders, but the philosophy, it was a philosophy that that interested her. And she believed that philosophy was deeply moral and, and ethical. Randy, I'd love to hear you talk more about a, an idea you address in your essay. You wrote, the ambiguity of Neil's work is a source of its rich complexity and appeal, but it has also encouraged some misunderstanding and misinterpretation among its viewers. What kinds of misinterpretation are most common, do you think, and, and how can we better understand Neil's art? Uh, that statement is in the context of my essay, which is about Neil's queer subjects and her engagement with queer people and queer culture um, over the course of her career. Um, and specifically, it's in response to um, a tendency that's quite pronounced in the literature around Neil's depictions of pairs of queer sitters that um, misinterprets those double portraits in this instance as. Um, kind of marriage portraits, uh, the sort of um, superimposition of, of a kind of heteronormative monogamy onto her depictions of whether it's Jackie and Rita, uh, that that's a, a kind of marriage, uh, albeit an unconventional one, but interpreted as a, as a marriage portrait, um, or the double portrait of David Borden and Gregory Badcock. Uh, which is absolutely not uh, <laughs> a double portrait of a romantically um, uh, uh, related uh, gay couple. Um, so there is a kind of well-intended impulse to, to read those images as um, celebratory uh, images of, of loving gay couples in a kind of heteronormative, monogamous um, uh, way and part of my essay uh, pushes back against that, especially around Badcock, for instance. I mean, he was a very sex positive um, advocate of of um, polyamory, and um, and so any notion that that double portrait with Borden is um, is a kind of um, uh, again a kind of marriage portrait of a of a loving gay couple uh, in in a conventional sense is really um, really too too far-fetched. Um, so that's the context in which I make that um, point around misinterpretation and ambiguity um, uh, in the context of, of her depictions of queer people. I'm fascinated too by the evolution of Neil's relationship to abstract painting, um, which she, she made some statements about her position earlier in her career that put her fairly firmly in opposition to it. But um, as a number of people in the book point out, her own paintings were not without elements of abstraction. Julia Bryan Wilson writes in her essay that for Neil, figuration was a political choice and that so too was her penchant for abstracting. I wonder what each of you thinks about the evolution of Neil's relationship to abstraction. Well, Randy and I were, we spent a lot of time parsing that question and and we wanted to you know um 
we, we knew all along that we wanted to emphasize, we wanted to give viewers of the show an opportunity to see and experience Neil's paintings as, as paintings, as works of art. And that involves drawing attention to their formal, structural, and stylistic qualities. And, and then we also wanted to understand her, um, you know, resistance to abstraction at a certain moment of, uh, in, in her career. And, and actually, we, we went to, I think when we started, Randy will have to correct me, but I think when we started research on the show, we, we the, the, the usual line of thinking, the, um, the, the um, usual line of interpretation, we, we, we had sort of bought, which was that Neil was a representational painter who resisted abstraction through most of her career. And we were expect, and then as we found evidence of that, and actually when she was most, her most vociferous statements against abstraction were made in the 40s and 50s. Um, and, you know, during the height of the Cold War, when abstraction um, and realism were both politicized and, and kind of caught up in the battle between communism and capitalism. And as somebody who, as an artist who is sympathetic to communism, and whose career was suffering as a result of the rise of abstract expressionism, it made sense that she would speak out against abstraction during those decades. But what we didn't expect to find, but did, because it's all over her interviews, it's in the archive, was that later in life, Neil claimed um, an, an alliance with abstraction. She, you know, the, the, her, the, the quote um, that serves as a title for, for Julia's essay, good abstract qualities, you know, comes from Neil herself. She believed that every painting has good abstract qualities. Um, and she, you know, her beef with abstraction starts to relent in the 60s and, and 70s. Her rhetoric starts to change. And she actually becomes, you know, in a way, more interested in defending what is modern about her paintings. And what's modern about her paintings is their abstraction, is their formal structural qualities, the unfinished nature of, of the work, which is what makes so many of her paintings seem abstract. Um, but then but then there's also, I think, some of her her animosity towards abstraction has a lot to do with her roots in Cuba, which which Randy might want to talk about. He did some some research into that period of, of her career for the book. Yeah, um, I would just add to say that I think that the exhibition generally pushes back against any kind of stereotype, stereotyping of Neil as a grandmotherly portrait painter. Um, and um, in that regard, you know, as Kelly said, we really wanted to call attention to her great facility with the brush and her, um, her artistic conversation with abstraction in the 20th century um, and complicate uh, a kind of reductive uh, view of Neil as opposed to abstraction. Um, but um, as Kelly alluded to, um, she read um, and followed and took many cues from uh, Gassettes um, on the dehumanization of art uh, published in the 1920s. Um, and that text itself is reductive in its own way, um, but that uh, text uh, really planted a seed, uh, and she saw Gassette as um, a kind of prophet for especially the return of figurative painting in the 1960s and into 1970s, which helped to buoy her own career, uh, late, fairly late career. Um, so uh, I, I'm actually very pleased that the, um, our 
as you experience the, the exhibition, the final section uh, gets into these explicitly into these formal issues, which I hope you know casts a new and different light for many people around Neil and um, uh, calling attention to these paintings as paintings, as as Kelly said. I haven't had a chance to visit the exhibition yet, though I very much hope to, but looking at the art in the book <clears throat> and reading the essays, it's, it's hard not to come away with the feeling that this exhibition is particularly well-timed right now, not least for the sort of obvious reason that seeing so many interesting unmasked faces is pretty uh, refreshing and unusual these days. But, you know, the way she depicts people is is both unromanticized and sympathetic. And that combination of honesty and compassion feels really good and really necessary right now. I'm wondering if, if you agree. I'm curious how long you've been working on this and whether it has felt increasingly relevant to you through the course of the past, oh, I don't know, 13 months or so. Well, well so Randy and I have been working on the exhibition for maybe a little over two years. And you know was was relevant two years ago, we knew it was time, the chair of our department, Sheena Wagstaff, knew it was time, Max Holine knew it was time for a major Alice Neal retrospective. The artist deserved to be reassessed. Um, she deserved to be seen. She was on the tips of many living artist tongues. Anyway, but we, we are also, we recognize that her um, commitment to people, to social justice, to inclusion, all of those subjects made her important to be seen at this moment. So Randy and I started working on the catalog in March 2020, shortly after the, the Met closed. And as the pandemic started raging, especially in New York and, and New Jersey, um, and we continued working on the catalog, continued writing and, and editing through the spring and summer of that year, um, during and after George Floyd's murder um, and the, the, the protests that, that roiled the, the country and all those events impacted our perspective on on Neil. I, I think we found we found writing about that artist um, to be something of a of a lifeline, gave us a sense of focus and, and purpose. And while at the same time the events we were all experiencing helped help really focus our, our thinking on on the artist. Yeah I think um, Kelly and I and maybe other authors too maybe thought that had Neil been alive um, to, to go through this year with us, um, that her concerns, you know, and her, um, her feelings would have been very um, consistent with what we saw playing out uh, in, uh, in the news and on newspapers. Uh, she would have been protesting, I think, as she did protest in uh, the name and support of, of racial justice. Um, also, too, just I think fundamentally with regard to visitors coming through and being very um, affected by the show, of course, we've been deprived of uh, interaction and contact. Um, and there's a sense of both that really permeates the show because, of course, as she's painting her so-called pictures of people, she preferred that phrase over portraits to describe her work, that you get a sense of Neil's connection to her sitter. Now, that connection isn't always pleasant because Neil wasn't a sentimental person and she was not a sentimental um, painter. She had rather also a 
innate uh, kind of empathy for the cruelties of life. Uh, and she went there in her art. And, you know, I think that um, this past year has been uh, compounded in its cruelty in certain ways and outside of our control in many ways. And, and Neil embraced that, um, the fact that life is difficult uh, in, in so many ways. And so um, you get a sense of her recognizing uh, that experience that we've all uh, encountered in, in any number of ways over, over the past few months. Yeah, I don't know if it's just the introspection of the past year, but I had a thought uh, looking at her pictures of people in the book that um, that looking at a portrait of yourself that Alice Neal had painted might give you the sense that she had seen something in you that you weren't quite aware of or only dimly aware of or something like that. Um, and that that can be both unsettling and also uh, salutary. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that's a wonderful way to describe her, her pictures of people. I think you're, you're absolutely right. Well, thank you both for bringing this exhibition to the Met, to the world. Thank you for your work on the book, which is fantastic. And thank you very much for taking the time today to talk to me about it. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Much appreciated. This is uh, an exceptional book, an exciting exhibition. The title, again, of both is Alice Neal, People Come First. The exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art is on view until August 1st. The book can be purchased now wherever books are sold. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with the whole podcast series and all the latest from our blog and our authors.